Daniel chapter 7. Now, I have said it before, but if you guys had to uh, summarize the book of Daniel, uh, how is it unique? What is it compared to in the New Testament? Thank you. It is the Old Testament equivalent of the book of Revelation. Both of our questions tonight were asked by, is it okay if I give your name? I just kind of gave it away. Ben asked both of the questions for tonight, and both of them are heavily taking place in the book of Daniel. We'll go elsewhere for a couple others, but uh, I'm really looking forward to tonight. Tonight's going to be fun and exciting. We're going to hit some deep history and some deep doctrinal stuff. So I hope you guys are ready. I'm ready. Are you ready? Half of you, I feel, didn't even hear that question. Okay, awesome. Who wants to go ahead and open us up in a word of prayer? Who's ready for that? Kendall, go ahead. Let's pray, guys. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, I want to thank you for this day, God. I thank you for bringing us here tonight. Um, Lord, I just pray that um, we would just have a good time with the study tonight. Uh, and God, I know it's going to be interesting, but I pray that you would just help us to get um, something devotionally out of it and just that we would be able to uh, spend time together and spend time um, in your word. God, we love you so much, and I just pray that you help us to be lights for the rest of the week um, and give Corey the words to speak. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, first question, question number one. What four nations are represented by the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7? Well, without further ado, let's just dive right in and see what's going on here. Verse 1. Actually, Ben, you're not ready. Uh, Hayden, uh, you're in Daniel chapter 7, correct? Uh, okay, we're going to start in the back row. Let's see who's ready. Kagan, Kagan's ready. Daniel chapter 7. You're going to take verse 1. You're going to take verse 1, and we're going to snake around until we get down to... How are we supposed to be able to tell who's behind us? Don't worry, I'll, I'll let you... Well, here, we're going to snake around this way, then it's going to come to Caitlin. And then after Darren's done, we're going to go over to Ray. Too late? Too late, bro. And then we're going to snake around this way. We are going to go until... Uh, let's say... Verse 8. All right. So we're just going to have the first eight volunteers. I might pick on you guys later to do some reading. Kagan, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream of ambition. He was head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the son of the matter. Go, go. Seeing things <laughs> By night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens drove above, above the great sea. <clears throat> so, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. Hmm. Sorry, I just found that in the audience. Verse 4. <laughs> okay, sorry. Uh, the first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were butt, and it was lifted up from the earth, and it stand upon the feet as a man. And a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came upon, 
came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. Wow. Pretty interesting, weird, freaky, and if we're being honest, somewhat confusing stuff, right? Okay, so let's dive right in on this. So first bullet point you have on here, these four beasts line up perfectly with the rising kingdoms of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. Well, how do we know this? Don't just take my word for it. Let's look at what the Bible says. It compares scripture with scripture. Uh, we left off with Mallory, right? Delaney. Read verse 15, because Daniel talks for a little bit more about these things. And then look what he says in verse 15, and then Sammy 16, Kendall 17. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them that stood by, and I asked him the truth of all of this. So he told me and made me know the interpretation of the things. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. Ah, okay, so we're getting somewhere with this. Uh, see, as we just keep reading, the Bible is a self-defining book. It has all the answers. It'll let you know what it's talking about here. These four beasts are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. Now, why this coordinates with Daniel's or Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel chapter 2 is because Daniel has a dream. That is also talking about kingdoms that shall rise. So go ahead and turn over to Daniel chapter 2, and we'll take a look at these. Daniel chapter 2, and you guys are probably familiar with this with the Sunday school story that you grew up with. Nebuchadnezzar, he is the king of Babylon. He goes and he ransacks Israel. Israel had been in apostasy for a while at this point. They, they overthrew and ransacked Israel, and they took all of the Jewish boys, all of them captive, and brought them into Babylon. They enslaved them. They brought them up into their worldly system. They brought them up into their customs, their ideals, their rituals, their religion. But we had a few faithful boys who wouldn't bow the knee, who wouldn't partake of the king's meat. And so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he has no idea what's going on. So who does he seek? He seeks out the man Daniel, who was ready to give an answer to everyone that asketh of the reason of the hope that is in him with meekness and fear. Are you? How's it been this week? Has anybody asked you for a question that you didn't know the answer to? We've got to be ready. So look at verse 31. He talks about this dream. And in verse 31, it says, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, and his feet part of iron and part of clay. So, how many elements do we have here? I should have got a little visual for it. So, we got a head... We have chest and arms. Sounds like a, a gym workout list. You got head, you got chest and arms, you have the belly and thighs. Can't skip leg day. You have legs, then you have feet. So the head, what, what metal does it represent? Huh? <laughs> What's next? Is something going wrong here? No, okay. Silver. Silver. 
Toe raises, toe touches. Silver, thank you. I'm getting distracted. All right. Belly and thighs. What metal is that? Brass. Brass. What next? Iron. Iron. And then the feet. Iron. Ooh. So that tells you something, doesn't it? This is iron mixed with clay, which tells you that whatever's going on here is directly connected to what's going on up here in the legs. Now, what do you guys notice going from head to toe about these metals? Absolutely. They degrade in value. They're not as great as it was up here in the head. And of course, the same thing's going on here. Nebuchadnezzar has no idea what's going on, and so there's Daniel to give him the answer, to give him the interpretation that all of these parts of his image, all of these metals, they represent kings and kingdoms. Jump down to verse 38. And whosoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, and the fowl of heaven hath he given into thine hand, talking about God, and hath made thee, Nebuchadnezzar, ruler over them all, Thou art the head of gold. So on your outline, the kingdoms of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the head of gold is what? The Babylonian Empire. They were the ones in charge at the time. They were the ruling world empire at that time in history. Next, look at verse 32. Well, we have to touch that. We talked about the, the arms of silver and everything. Uh, the answer to that's in verse 39. After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. And we don't have the time to look at it, but all you have to do, I mean, just look at world history. In fact, we actually could take the Bible and prove it because in Daniel chapter 5, and we'll see it in a little bit here, it tells us who the next world kingdom was. It tells us who the next ruler was. You know who that world empire was? The Medo-Persian Empire. Oh, I guess I didn't leave that as a blank on your study sheet. Of course you would know it. After Babylon had its heyday, the Medes and the Persians to the little bit of the east, they would rise up and they would overtake Babylon and they would be the ruling class. But then after them, you could even say it started with 300 men, for those of you who've seen the movie, who went to war against the Medes and the Persians. And where were those 300 men from? Sparta! Echo, did you hear that? Really? No one? Greece? The Grecian Empire, yes. And then after them, Alexander the Great. He would go on this just, just torrential downpour of conquering. Left and right, he became a world conqueror, and Greece became the world empire that would rise up after the Medo-Persian Empire. But they didn't last too long. In fact, they started getting into some debauchery. And like all other civilizations throughout world history, whenever they start getting into utter sin and debauchery and heinous sin, that civilization crumbles to the ground. And it led way for the fourth world empire, which is the Roman Empire. Look again in the second half of verse 39. And another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. In verse 40, the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. For as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and what? Bruise. 
Now, the Roman Empire, you might be thinking during, you know, the Caesars and, and all of, uh, uh, you know, all of the emperors, uh, Caesar Augustus, all of those guys that ruled during the time of Christ and before that. But keep in mind, for those of you who were here with us when we studied Revelation and we looked at church history, did the Roman Empire go away? No. In fact, the Roman Empire just seemed to merge with paganism and they took Christianity and kind of intermingled it in with their pagan beliefs and they became the Holy Roman Empire. And if you were here with us for church history, everything that we just read in verse 40 about it breaking into pieces and subduing all things, did they not do that as an empire? Have control over everything in the world? have control over what books you were allowed to read, over what news was being published, over where you were allowed to go to church. Oh yeah, and did they break in pieces and bruise? Do we need to go back through the martyrs and what happened to them at the hands of the Holy Roman Empire? To the tune of 50 million martyrs who believe the exact same things you and I do to this day. They did just that and more. Then you come to this fifth kingdom, Talking about the toes, verse 41, and part of potter's clay and part of iron. In other words, it's the iron of the Holy Roman Empire, but it's intermingled so you can't really tell. It's mixed in with another substance so that you can't really tell by looking at it. Is that of Rome or is that something entirely different? It's almost like it went underground under your feet. Maybe why it's signified by that. And there shall be in it much strength of iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with clay, and as the toes, verse 42, of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest, verse 33, iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. They're reproducing. They're being fruitful and multiplying, and they're replenishing the earth in their own way. But they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And then he talks about this other kingdom to come, and where it's Christ coming back and ruling and reigning, and he dismantles all of these. So on your outline, point five, the feet of iron and clay, this is the Antichrist's one world government and religion. And in case you need any further point on that, we're getting somewhere with this. Revelation 13, 1 and 2, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten what? Horns. See, here it's ten feet, or ten toes, rather. This is ten horns, but they match up because they both have to do with ten. And upon his horns, ten crowns. And upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a what? And his mouth as the mouth of a... Why does that sound familiar? We just read that in Daniel chapter 7. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and his great authority. Now, go ahead and you guys are in Daniel chapter 2. Flip back to Daniel chapter 7. So in Daniel chapter 7, we saw four beasts. We had, what, a lion with eagle's wings, and those wings, it said, came plucked off, almost as though it separated from the lion. And the second beast was a bear. 
and had three ribs in his mouth. And the third beast was a leopard. And the fourth beast, look at it again in verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. And it had great, what? Oh, iron. It devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. And it had what? Ah, so you can see here, this same beast in Revelation 13, 1 and 2, that has 10 horns, is the exact same beast of Daniel chapter 7, verse 7, the fourth beast. So we understand that that's the Antichrist, but what about these other three? Now, a special note before we get to the, the second uh, or the third bullet point on your outline here. Again, it's just, it never ceases to amaze me how awesome God is. Because we're doing question and answers on Wednesday nights, and we just started biblical relationships on Sunday. And never in a million years would you think that those two classes would go together. But as we saw from this past Sunday, something from last Wednesday affected what God put on my heart to speak this past Sunday. And something from this past Sunday has worked its way into this study for tonight. Because for the longest time, before going forward to talk about what these other three animals are, for the longest time, I believed that they represented something different than what I'm about to share with you tonight. I was taught and I was believed and, and, I, and I read and studied from godly men from a long time ago who studied this out, who believed the Bible, and they compiled things together that said, hey, you know what? That first beast, that lion, that's like the Babylonian Empire. And the second beast, the bear, it's very much like the Medo-Persian Empire. And the third beast, uh, that's very much like the Grecian Empire, that leopard. That leopard, it got to move quickly, just like Alexander the Great. He went and he just traversed the entire world rapidly, conquering the world. And of course, we know that the Antichrist is connected with Rome when we study Revelation 17 and 18. So he's that fourth beast. That's what I've studied. That's what I've gathered from other Bible believers who have studied that. But just like we touched on this past Sunday, a rule of Bible study... You need to have the attitude to change what you believe when what you've been taught goes contrary to what the Bible actually says. Because if we believe what the Bible says in Daniel 7, there is no way that these four beasts of Daniel 7 match up with these. It's not like for like, it's shifted. Here's how I'll prove it to you. Look at, uh, well, let's look at your note here. Note, there are five kingdoms in Daniel 2, whereas there are only four beasts listed in Daniel 7. They do line up, but where they line up is of the utmost importance. Look at verse 1 of Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Okay, who's the king here? Belshazzar. And where is he from? Babylon, because we just read that in verse 1. Okay? So Daniel's having this dream while the second king of Babylon is in charge. Actually, I think he was later than Nebuchadnezzar, but that's, he's for sure the last king of Babylon. Jump down to verse 15 again. 
Daniel said he was grieved in his spirit, so he came and he talked to this angelic being in verse 16. Hey, what's the vision here? What's the interpretation of these things? In verse 17, these great beasts, which are how many? Are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. What verb tense is shall arise? Future. Future. Meaning, there is absolutely no way that the lion is Babylon. Because Babylon's already in charge here. And the angel just said in verse 17, these four beasts represent the kingdoms that are going to come after. They shall arise. And you know what just so happened to happen in Daniel chapter 5? In fact, right there, just look at it. Look at verse 30 of chapter 5. Flip back one page if you need to. In that night was who? The king of the Chaldeans slain. He was the king of Babylon. And verse 31, and Darius the who? You guys know what nation a Median is from? The Medes and the Persian Empire. Took the kingdom about three score and two years old. So that means that the lion is not Babylon. The beast of Daniel's dream on your outline. Point one. The lion represents Persia. Up until this very week when I studied this, I was convinced from what I had studied before that it was Babylon. But when I looked at that passage in Daniel chapter 7, when it says these four kings shall rise afterwards, it's not Babylon. Something that's interesting about this, up here on the screen I have the Iranian flag. And for those of you who don't know, you know where Iran is located in the Middle East? <coughs> right where Persia just so happened to be. And this was their flag, 1846 to 1980. It had a lion with the sun behind it. And the actual Persian flag, approximately around the time that we're reading in Daniel, it was this, looks like an eagle wing, doesn't it? Very representative of our first beast. A lion with eagle wings on it. The eagle wings get plucked off, almost as though there are two empires in one. The Medes and the Persians. Pretty interesting. On your outline... The lion with the sun in the background has become associated with Persia since 333 B.C., which is modern-day Iran, to fill in your blank, and served as Iran's flag from 1846-1980. Coincidentally, the symbol of the Persian Empire when Cyrus conquered was that of an eagle with its wings spread up there on the screen. Next, point two. What about the bear? The bear with its three ribs. It's the Grecian Empire. It's Greece. And isn't it interesting, it's described as a bear. The character qualities of a bear's power certainly describe the conquest and rule of Alexander the Great. Just read books about him and his conquest and how he dominated and how people trembled and feared whenever he was coming to town. He marched with authority, with great power, as well as his generals who ruled after him. Which means third, the leopard. The leopard represents the nation or the empire of Rome. Rome was a melting pot of various cultures. Do you guys know what we mean when we say that? Melting pot? 
What other nation, out of curiosity, is described as a melting pot? U.S. US yeah. You know why? Because they have people of all different races, all different cultures, all blending in. Might want to file that away because we're coming back to that in a little bit. And this plays into your question that you asked last week. The Roman government goes on further. Was the first worldwide representative government with anybody want to take a guess? How many heads did this beast have here? How many heads did this leopard have? Now the leopard, not the other beast, the leopard. Let's look at it again. Verse 6. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon its back four wings. The beast had also four heads. You guys know how many branches of the government are in Rome? Four heads. The emperor, the consuls, the senate, and the assembly. And point number four, lastly, of course, we already kind of discussed this. The diverse, hmm, he's all about diversity. The dreadful, the terrible, and exceedingly strong beast. Daniel couldn't even think of another animal to describe it as. He just called it an amogalum, just a weird, wacky beast. It is the rule of the Antichrist in his reign. You can check out those passages later. And again, we already saw Revelation 13.1. We could end the question there, because that is biblically accurate. But there's something else I want to throw out to you guys as a possibility. I had teased this and mentioned this in another class. I think it was actually how to study the Bible. Most prophecy, in fact, not all, but a lot of prophecy in the Bible, has what's called a double fulfillment. In other words, when the prophet speaks it, it comes true later on in the future, but that prophecy also has an end time fulfillment that is yet to come later. So even though we might be reading it in the Old Testament and it is a prophecy and it comes true historically speaking, maybe during the course of the Bible later on, maybe in the course of the last couple years of human history, but it definitely has another application, a future application for the tribulation later on. And I personally think that these three beasts and these three animals have a dual application to other empires and world powers that would come to fruition later on. For example, you're in Daniel chapter 7. Look with me in verse 2. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by when? Night. You know what's interesting about that phrase, night, or in the night, in the evening? The Lord cometh as a thief in the night. Whenever you trace that phrase throughout the Bible, you know what you come to find? That that phrase is associated with God not being around. In other words, it's a time when the Lord is not on this earth. The Lord did come down in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, was born, died, was crucified, was buried, rose again, and then he ascended up on high, and he's no longer here. John 9.5 says, As long as I am in the world, I am the what? When light is taken out, what do you have? If it's not day, it is... Hmm. Romans 13.12, a very familiar verse, should be with you guys. Paul's talking to the church, and he says, The night is far spent. The day is at hand. What's he talking about? The church age is about to end, 
and the coming of the day of the Lord is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, and 6. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Remember what Jesus said, that the day of the Lord, where there shall be no more darkness, there shall be no more night, it shall come as a thief in the night, when you're not suspecting it. No, you're all the children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. This phrase, talking about nighttime, indicates the time when the Lord's not here on the earth. So I wonder if when Daniel is talking in verse 2 that he had this vision in the night, God preserved that specific word, had Daniel write that down specifically to give us a clue to start tracing through our Bibles to know, huh, whenever I see that phrase night show up in the Bible, it's talking about the church age. It's talking about a time when God is not physically here yet. So I wonder if these four beasts, these four kingdoms, these four empires arise during the church age. Let's see if it makes sense. Huh. The coat of arms for England just so happens to be a lion. And what is the lion doing there on the left? Standing. Let me just read Daniel 7, verse 4, if you guys aren't there, or you could read it too. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I, had, I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made stand upon the feet as a man. Hmm. Hmm. Coincidence. The shield of England until 1640, that of a lion. You'll see lion statues all over England if you were to go there. So, on your outline, the lion, could it represent England? The lion is the king of the walking animals. The eagle is the king of the flying animals. This lion had eagle's wings on its back. And as the world power that rises shortly after Rome, her coat of arms and flags have always been associated with a lion. Now here's where it gets really freaky. Do you guys realize in all of human history, there's only ever been two times where in a monarch, which means it has a king, tells God's people, the Jewish nation, you can go back home and freely worship in the land of Israel. Only two times has that ever happened. On your outline, the first was the king of Persia. Ezra chapter 1. Verses 1 to 3. This is the book that takes place immediately after the book of Daniel. When they're in captivity in Babylon. Cyrus. In the first year of Cyrus, king of who? We already said he's the lion. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. He's fulfilling prophecy with this. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing. Side notes, 
little hobby horse, I gotta say it, but when a king puts a proclamation down in writing, might want to take note of any of that. A king puts writing down, makes a proclamation, puts it in writing. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes that where the word of a king is, there is authority. Just a little side note, that one's a freebie. File that away. Do what you will with that. Verse 2, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven. Uh, the key to that was a king of England. I think I winked there, but I did both eyes. That was weird. The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me, Cyrus speaking, to build him an house where? At Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Here it is. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. That literally happened. The king of Persia, represented by the lion in Daniel chapter 7, tells the Jewish people, go home to your land. It's your land, not anybody else's land. You can worship there freely. And like I already mentioned about a dual fulfillment of prophecy, that did fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah. But do you realize this happened again in history? All throughout church history, the Jews become scattered. And some of them, they go to different parts of Europe and even to the Americas, and they find that they're becoming very, very wealthy with what they've been able to invent and the businesses they've been able to start. And not to mention, their homeland of Palestine is completely ransacked and overtaken. They don't have a nation to call their own until the Great War, World War I, when this guy... Arthur James Balfour, who was the, uh, the British, oh, I forget what he was. He was in the British government. I forget his actual title. He writes a letter in November 2nd, 1917. Dear Lord Rothschild, Rothschild was the head of the Zionist movement. He is, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of his majesty's government. I feel like I should read this in a British accent. The following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspiration, which has... I think that was more like... Yeah, what are you going for? I'm going to go back to American. <laughs> following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. In other words, you guys go home, it's your land, we're going to support you best way we can. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. During this time, there were so many Jews who were passionate. They wanted to go back to their homeland, but they had no funding. They had no help from any of the other nations of the world. Because the Turks and the Ottomans had all completely ransacked Israel, just like all of the enemies of Israel did in the Old Testament. And here, the lion... The world power at the time is telling Israel to go back home. This is the Bible come to life. If 
this doesn't get your blood pumping, check to see if you're alive. This is intense stuff on your outline. There's only ever been two kings to tell Israel to return back to his homeland. The first was the king of Persia. The second was the king of England. And just like the lion had its eagle wings plucked, at one point, her eagle wings, England's, would be plucked from her. And England would stand on its own. Gee, wonder what world power represents eagle wings. Hmm. Hmm. Spirit of 76, where we broke off, plucked off from that lion. Next, the bear. That one's pretty easy. Putin. Their ruling party of Russia, this is their emblem, this is their flag, it's that of a bear. This country has been symbolized by a bear since the 16th century and most certainly in the communist era. They're, no, they're known as being big, brutal, and clumsy in their worldwide dealings, much like a bear. Now, the bear in Daniel 7 says that it has three ribs in its mouth. The three ribs in its mouth could represent Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Uh, those were the three places that they got independence from Russia, and Russia's been trying to get them back, been trying to put it back in its mouth. It could represent that. But you know what's interesting? Russia was also the first major nation to turn to communism. You guys thought it was China. Russia started it all. Yeah. After them, it was China, it was Laos, it was Vietnam, it was Korea. It was the domino effect. Also, you know what? Who does the leopard, uh, who did we say, or sorry, who does the bear represent that we said prior to this? Before the church history part. Greece, Greece. yeah. Anybody know what religion Russia was up until 1921 when they had their revolution? Greek Orthodox. That was the religion of Russia. Greek Orthodox. Did you also know that their alphabet is based upon the Greek alphabet? Again, we might be stretching here. Do you notice how there's no Bible verses with these? Because we don't know for sure. I think you can make a strong case for the England one. Bear, Russia, and this next one. Could be, could be nothing. But are these not world powers that have come into play in the night time while Daniel's having the night vision? Part three, who do you guys think the leopard represents? Well, if it's synonymous or a type of Rome, if it's a picture of Rome, Rome is a melting pot. Rome has heads of government. America. America has always been a melting pot of many nationalities of people. It rep its representative government was modeled after that of, guess, Rome. There are three branches of government in the U.S. with the people often viewed as the fourth branch or the fourth head due to expressing their voice through vote. Hmm. And lastly, again, the behemoth is, of course, the Antichrist. He's a conglomerate of everything above. We saw it. He's got the body of a leopard. He's got the feet of a bear. And he's got the mouth of a lion. That's the four nations of the book of Daniel. And the typologies of who they could be during this time. 
Any questions on that? All right. Moving along. Question number two. Who is the Antichrist? Turn over to Revelation 13. Now, in our study of uh, the book of Revelation that we did around this time last year, more last spring, uh, we looked at a composite of who he is as far as his character traits. Uh, you know, some of his character traits is that he's a great orator. He's a great public speaker. Uh, another thing we're going to see is that, or that we saw was that he's an economic genius. You know, again, you got to think when the rapture happens and a whole, you know, millions of Christians just vanish all of a sudden and all of these children and these kids just vanish and, you know... <laughs> You gotta think about this too. Women everywhere start having miscarriages because the babies that were in them get raptured. Boy, ponder that one for a while. When everything like that happens, people are gonna have a lot of questions. They're gonna to wanna to look for someone with answers. They're gonna look for an intellectual genius who's got all the answers. We've covered that. We've talked about those things about him and, and his character traits of you know what's gonna comprise him like that before. We're not going to do that with this question because when I talked with you, you said specifically, who is he? Do we know like his, ethno or his uh, eth ethnicity? Thank you. Ethnology? <laughs> the study of eths. Ethens. Long day. What's his ethnicity? What's his, his family lineage? What's his background? It'll make sense as we go through it, but I thought Revelation 13 was the perfect place to start. Verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was <laughs> like a leopard. His feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a... And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and gave great authority. I hope you were paying attention for the last 25, 30 minutes. Because question one bleeds right into question two. He's a conglomerate of all of these things that we just looked at. For sure, Persia, Greece, and Rome. I wonder if these other three nations have anything to do with him too. So in Revelation 13.1, we see here that this beast, the Antichrist, he's rising up out of the sea. Now, the thing with this that's very, very important is that whenever you trace this phrase, the sea, anywhere throughout the Bible, you know what you find out? It's called the Great Sea. It's the Mediterranean Sea. Oh, question two, who's the Antichrist? Uh, real quick, we'll come back to that map. Numbers 34, 6 says, and as for the talking about Israel and where their border should be, he goes, the western border, Israel, ye shall have, even have the, what? For a border. This shall be your west border. And even as we saw in Daniel chapter 7, too, Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens drove upon the? You guys seeing that his vision mirrors perfectly with Revelation 13? This is how we know. See, this is why it's so important that you compare Scripture with Scripture. This is how you learn the Bible. You don't need a college professor. You definitely don't need to master Greek and Hebrew in order to know the Bible. You just take what the Bible says here, and you compare it here a little and there a little. Line upon line, precept upon precept, just like Isaiah said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that's how you learn the mind of Christ. Had we not compared Scripture to Scripture, we probably wouldn't have been able to connect those two chapters together. 
And that's why many churches, they do get lost in this whole idea, and they think that they're two separate beasts happening at two separate times. It's very important to implement that rule of Bible study. So we see that it's the great sea here. And I have up here this little picture. Sorry if you guys in the back can't see it. But here's the Mediterranean Sea, and I have highlighted all of the countries that the Mediterranean Sea touches. What do you guys notice about it? I'll be honest, I never really thought about this before until this week when it comes to the Mediterranean. It's touching several countries. But what about continents? Two. Three. Yeah, you have Africa, you have Asia, and you have Europe. Three continents. I told you, file that away. It's coming back again by the end of this question. Three continents. All of those countries the Mediterranean touches. So we know based upon that, if the Antichrist is coming up, he has something to do with these three continents and with some of the countries that may even be up on this board here. So the second bullet point, his family lineage. Now, this was kind of interesting. I remember we, a couple of us had a, a little powwow up here after one of the classes in Revelation last spring about the Antichrist. And the thing that many of you guys were, were very vehement about, and even seniors who graduated, was that, yeah, the Bible says he's an Assyrian, and he's got maybe Jewish blood in him, but he's definitely an Assyrian. And I had challenged you guys, is that all? For those of you who are up here. Is that all? Maybe some of you, you've heard that before. That, yeah, he's, he's called the Assyrian, and maybe he's got Jewish blood in him. So he's got a Jew and Gentile mixed composite. Is that all? In point one, let me get Daniel 9.26 up on the screen. Daniel 9.26 says, After three score and two weeks, this is during the tribulation period, shall, or this is actually, sorry, this is when Christ dies, shall Messiah be cut off. Jesus dies, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come, that fourth beast of Daniel 7, the, the people of that prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood, and unto the end of the, of the war desolations are determined. And wouldn't you know it, that in 70 A.D., somebody goes in and completely obliterates the temple in Jerusalem. <coughs> Destroys Jerusalem. Crucifies so many Jews to the point that they run out of wood. Anybody know who did that? Titus. And what was Titus a general of? Or an emperor of? What empire? 70 AD. Who was in charge then? Don't think. Say it with confidence. It's Rome. It says here in Daniel 9.26 that the prince shall come. His people are going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. This tells us that the Antichrist, the prince that shall come, that fourth beast of Daniel 7, he's going to be a Roman. And as we've seen in Revelation 17 and 18, he is definitely connected with Rome. He comes straight out of Rome. And by the way, that also, it's a double fulfillment. Because according to Bible prophecy and the book of Revelation, 
the temple is going to be rebuilt shortly after the rapture of the church. You realize that they have all the material in Israel right now to rebuild the temple. They could do it like that. And the Bible says that at the three and a half year point, the Antichrist is going to march into the temple. He's going to sit down on the throne, declare himself to be God, and he's going to commit what 2 Thessalonians 2 calls the abomination of desolation, where he declares himself to be God, and then he offers and makes an offering upon the altar that completely violates the law of God. That happened where the temple was destroyed. And then the Antichrist, he's going to do that again. And then the temple and the city are going to be destroyed yet again in the tribulation period. And in Revelation chapter 12, it says the dragon is going to persecute the children of Israel. And you know what it says is going to proceed out of his mouth? Water. To flood them. It's going to happen again. There's a lot of prophecy that happens more than once in the Bible. We've got to rightly divide what we see here. But according to Daniel 9.26, he's a Roman. Next, we don't have time to turn there, but if you were to check out Daniel chapter 8, verse 9, and, and the passages that I have there, you know what you'll find out there? That he's also a Greek. He's a Greek. He's known as the little horn. And the little horn that is going to come in and commit, as I just described to you guys, the abomination of desolation. Yeah, Titus and the Romans, they destroyed the city and they destroyed the sanctuary. But did you guys know that in 166 B.C., a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, you could try writing that name now, I'm not going to try to spell it for you. Antiochus Epiphanes, he actually went into the temple, <coughs> declared himself to be God, and took a swine, cut its throat, and poured its blood out upon the altar of God. 166 B.C., 200 years before Jesus was even on this earth. Anybody want to take a guess as to what nationality Antiochus Epiphanes was? A Greek. Mirroring exactly what Satan is going to do, what the Antichrist is going to do one of these days. And Daniel chapter 8 talks perfectly about everything that he's going to do there. Oh, and Antiochus Epiphanes also erected an altar of himself and declared everyone to bow down and worship it. Just like Nebuchadnezzar did in the book of Daniel, and just like the false prophet is going to do with the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13. Erect a false idol of the Antichrist and demand that people worship it. History repeats itself. Prophecy gets fulfilled more than one time in the Bible. Not only that, but hold your place in Revelation. Turn over to Isaiah 14. we got to see this one. I have a feeling I can guess this point. Really? Mm -hmm. Let's wait and see, and then you tell me at the end. Actually, write it down on a piece of paper. That way I know you won't make it up when we're done. Isaiah chapter 14. Again, we don't want to just go ahead and make assumptions or go based upon what somebody else has said. We want to know what the Bible has to say about this. Look with me in verse 4. Isaiah 14. That thou shalt take up this proverb, this is God speaking to Isaiah, against the king of who? 
and say, How hath the oppressor ceased? The golden city ceased. Jump down to verse 6. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger, is persecuted and none hindereth. And as we jump down through this, we find something very interesting about this king of Babylon in verse 12. Look what God has to say about him in verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O... Who? Hmm. Interesting. Many of you might be familiar with this passage, but you're not familiar with the context of what came before this passage. He is talking to an actual king of Babylon. But here he's talking about the power behind that wicked king of Babylon, which is Lucifer himself, Satan. And he talks about Satan's fall from heaven and Lucifer's fall. But then jump down to verse 16. They that see thee, it's almost like he jumps back and forth where he's like talking about the king and then talking about Lucifer's fall years prior. And now he's jumping forward again, talking about this king of Babylon. Verse 16. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? All the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, every one in his own house. But thou art cast out of thy grave like an abominable branch." Point three, he's also a Babylonian. What'd you have down? I thought it was Persian. Ah, no, we'll get to that. Close. Babylon is very close to Persia. You realize that the king that he's describing here, the king of Babylon, that no king of Babylon in history was ever described as doing what we just read there. Which tells us this is talking future. This is talking about a future Babylonian. And of course, the next one, the one you're all familiar with, Isaiah 10, 24. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of thee, Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt. Verse 25, that I will break thee in my land and upon my mountains tread him underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off them and his burden depart from off their shoulders. Next, the Assyrian. This is the Persian. Because Assyria is in modern-day Iran. Where did the Persian Empire come from? Modern-day Iran. Hmm. You can check out, uh, to, not to jump back and forth, but the, to go back to the Babylonian one. I have Genesis chapter 10 there. You know what you find out in that passage of Genesis chapter 10? That one of Noah's sons, Ham, who started the Hamites and all of his people, he had a descendant later on by a man named Nimrod. Nimrod went and started a city. Anybody know what that city's called? Babylon. And there he erected a tower where they tried to get their way to heaven in Babylon. He's also a picture of the Antichrist. But I wanted you guys to make a note that, he, or that Nimrod, who was a Babylonian, who started Babel, was a descendant of Ham, one of Noah's three sons. Out of curiosity, does anybody know where did Ham and Nimrod and his lineage, where did they end up settling geographically? Uh, Africa. Africa. Hmm. You guys know where, well, I already said where Assyria is. It's where? East of Israel into where? Egypt. 
What continent? Asia. Asia. Hmm. Humor me. Where do you find Greece and Rome? Europe. You realize that if you break down all races of people, there's multi-biracials and everything like that, but according to what the Bible says, all races break down to three people, and they all line up with Noah's three sons. Shem went east to Asia, Japheth went west to Europe, and Ham went south to Africa. All, th all races boil down to three main ones. Asian, African, and Caucasian. And all three races are represented on the Mediterranean Sea. So who is the Antichrist? Let me ask you, what's your nationality? Don't say American. I know for me, I had a great-grandfather who was 100% Native American. Don't ask me what tribe. But on my grandfather's side, there was, I think, some Polish blood, Italian, Irish, Scottish. Hey, I don't know. What am I? Corey. I'm Corey. Thank you. <laughs> I said, who am I? What am I? Not who am I? He's a conglomerate. And isn't that just like the serpent? How is he first described in Genesis chapter 3? More subtle than any other creature. You're not going to see him coming. <laughs> Lastly, yes, it is said that he has Jewish blood in him because of this passage. Daniel 11, 36 and 37. Add 37 to your study sheet. I don't think I had that on there. Uh, so it's talking about the Antichrist, about him magnifying himself above every god and doing marvelous things, yada, yada, verse 37. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. I'm telling you guys, run that phrase through the Bible. You know what you'll find? Every single time it is in reference to the Jewish people. The God of his fathers. The God of their fathers. It is talking about the Jewish people. And I don't know if you guys ever saw this or not before. But at the end of Jacob's life, when he's talking about his 12 sons, he comes to Dan. You know, the tribe of Dan. And he says, Dan shall be a serpent, by the way. An adder in the path that biteth the horse's heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. You guys know that if you were to flip back to Revelation and check out all of the, the 12 tribes that are represented in Revelation 14, that the tribe of Dan is missing. They're missing out on the inheritance. You know why? It's because of something that we covered in Judges 17 and 18 during church history, when the tribe of Dan created idols, and they got a priest with a black robe, and they called him Father, and the entire tribe went to him for their faith, went to him for forgiveness, went to him to get close with God. And they started worshiping the gods, the false gods of the Zidonians who were enemies of Israel. Just read Judges 17 and 18 later on. You'll find out why Dan is no longer a part of the heritage and getting the rewards and the inheritance in the kingdom in Revelation. Dan shall be a serpent. So yeah, he's probably going to have Jewish blood in him. And just like the Mediterranean Sea is connected to all three continents and therefore all three races of people, the Antichrist also is a conglomerate of all three races, 
and he's marked perfectly. You guys flip back to Revelation 13. We're wrapping up here. We are going to do a little bit of a Bible sword drill here at the end, but it'll go quickly. Revelation 13, look at verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like unto a what? His feet was the feet of the bear. His mouth was as the mouth of a lion. So it's funny. The bear is noted by its feet, and the mouth is noted by its lion. What body part is likened to the leopard? doesn't say. It gives you the connotation based upon the context of it that his entire being or most of his composite is that of a leopard. You know what's interesting about a leopard? It has a yellowish brown fur, a white belly, and blackish brown spots all over it. Perfect conglomerate of all three main races when you boil it all down. You contrast this with what 1 Peter 1 says about Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ was likened unto an animal, what is it? Lion of the tribe of Judah, but I'm thinking the other animal. A lamb? A lamb. But not just any lamb. A lamb, according to 1 Peter 1, that is without spot. He's pure, without blemish, without sin. Whereas a leopard is covered in spots, full of sin, so much so that the Antichrist is called the man of sin. What a book! So that was his famous family lineage. Now let's close with his family legacy. Flip over to chapter 9. This is going to be a sword drill. I need you guys to see these passages. Again, it'll go quick. Verse 11. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon. But in the Greek tongue, he hath his name Apollyon. On your outline, point one. He is angel over the bottomless pit, named Abaddon and Apollyon. Those words mean destroyer or perdition. Flip over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul's writing to this church because they're shaken up. They think the rapture's happened. He's trying to tell them, hey, somebody is making false letters from me and writing my name to it. Huh, go figure. Same thing's happening today. False letters from Paul, false Bibles from Paul. <coughs> with his name ascribed to it, but it's not him. And they say something different than what he says. Look at verse 3. He says, Let no man deceive you, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of what? Perdition. That's what Apollyon means. Destruction. Perdition. Abaddon. I probably just course them and do it more. Don't get lost here. Flip over to John 17. 
So the Antichrist is called here what? The son of who? Perdition. John 17. On point two, he's the son of perdition, which means destroyer, if you want to fill in your blank. John 17, 11. And now I am no more in the world. Christ is praying with his disciples. But these, his disciples, are in the world. I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but, except, who? The son of perdition. Yikes. There's only one other place in the entire Bible where the phrase son of perdition shows up. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, talking about the Antichrist. Who is Jesus talking about here? Judas. Flip back to chapter 6. Verse 70. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is as a devil? Is one of you like a devil? No, he is very careful with his word choosing there. One of you is a devil. Not like, not as, is a devil. He spake of who? Verse 71. Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Jump over to chapter 13. Again, I'm giving you everything I have so that you guys can take these notes, put them in your Bibles, so that way you have it. So that if somebody asks you, you can trace through and leave no stone unturned. You'll be able to prove with pinpoint accuracy what the Bible has to say, so that way it's not your opinion. That's the point of this class. Chapter 13, look at verse 21. The same time, therefore, to fill up which... Uh, why am I having you guys start there? It's the Last Supper. Oh, I was in chapter 12. Uh, hold on. All right. When Jesus had thus said, He was troubled in spirit, verse 21, and testified, said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And everyone's looking around, is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? John is the only one who's like, I know it's not me. Who is it? Verse 26, Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop. And of course, Judas Iscariot, he got the sop, dipped it. Verse 27, And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest do quickly. You guys might overlook this passage because we know in the Bible there's demon possession. More on that next week. There's demon possession that goes on, but do you realize that nowhere else in the entire Bible does it say what it specifically says right there? That Satan himself entered into somebody. Nowhere else in the Bible does it say that, except right here. And last, turn over to Acts chapter 1. So we know the story of what happened to Judas goes and he hangs himself 
there is a great earthquake that happens at the time of Christ's death. And so that's why there's two different spots where it says he hung himself. Then it says his guts gushed out and he was exploded all across the concrete because, well, he probably hung himself over a perch and the earthquake helped and caused him to fall down. But look what Peter is saying here in verse 16 of Acts chapter 1. Men and brethren, the scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning who? which was guide to them that took Jesus, for he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder into the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch that the field is called the proper tongue. Uh, I didn't want to read that. Jump down to verse 25 that he may take part of this ministry. So they're talking about replacing Judas, getting a new apostle. Uh, ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he, Judas, might go to his own place. Point three on your outline, things come full circle. Because in Revelation 17, 8... The beast that thou sawest was, as in he was a man, and is not, he's not a man at the time that you're writing this, John, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into where? Perdition. Point three, things come full circle as he ascends out of the bottomless pit, otherwise known as his own place indicating that he had already been there as Judas reincarnate. Hmm. You know what's interesting? When Judas enters the body of the Antichrist, you know how long he's going to be ministering his deeds? Three and a half years. Uh, how did Judas die again? He was hung on a tree. You know what Judas is Greek for? Judah. Both are lions. Satan is the greatest counterfeiter of Jesus Christ. He's a counterfeiter since Genesis chapter 3. Actually, since Isaiah 14, which happens before Genesis 3. More on that in two weeks' time. He's the greatest counterfeiter. Both have a connection with Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Satan is the roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. Next week, where do spirits and devils come from and how can they affect the actual physical world? And can devils and demons affect the lives of Christians? I'd like to applaud Ben for keeping you guys all uh, sleepless uh, when that night comes because he also asked those two questions. And in two weeks, Genesis, as I've been teasing, Genesis 1, 27, 28 says, replenish the earth. What does that mean? Do dinosaurs fit into this? Isabella, this also plays into your question about heaven and heavens that we're going to cover all within this. So, come back for more fun and festivities from the Word of God.